Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Edward Goldberg, author of Why Globalization Works for America. Ed, welcome. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Super. Uh, so, Ed, uh, give us a little bit about your background, and then let's we'll talk about the book. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is Best Business Minds. I was in international business for a good part of my career um, in international trade finance, working for some major companies around the world, and then slow, slowly, slowly um, moved to academia, where I am now um, an adjunct assistant professor at New York University Center for Global Affairs, and I'm a distinguished scholar at Baruch College of the City University of New York. My specialization is globalization. Very, very nice. And is this your second book? This is my second book. What was the first book that you wrote? All of a sudden, it slipped my mind. This is so strange. The first, the first book I was was called Joint Venture Nations, and actually, it was about that our country's foreign policy should be somewhat like in a business model of a joint ventured corporation, a joint ventured nation. Excellent, excellent. So let's talk about this book. Why did you write this particular book? And it's very timely. Oh, thanks. And, um, into, you know, during the last presidential election, I saw how both um, Trump and at that time Bernie Sanders were constantly attacking globalization. And my experience in international finance and international trade and doing business in the United States and my academic research showed me that globalization was really beneficial to the world and especially to the United States. And there was no counterattack to the anti-globalist arguments. There was no globalization manifesto that said, why is globalization good for the United States? So the impetus actually came from Trump and, ben and Bernie Sanders. An interesting combination to put in one sentence. Yes. Very, very interesting. So how do you define globalization? Uh, you know, I, I talk in the book that globalization is the economic and political evolution. Um, globalization is much older than the current arguments about globalization. It goes back from one country conquering another. It's Alexander the Great conquering the whole Middle East in, in, in making it into a Greek mode in terms of culture and, and economics. And um, what are the pluses and minuses of globalization? I mean, uh, you know, it was funny. The Republicans were always so for globalization. The Democrats were against it. And then it's flipped on its head when Trump uh, ran for office. Yeah, well, the, 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 look, the pluses of globalization, the United States has become much, much wealthier during globalization. You know, we all say, well, look, has China grown? 
Well, we've grown this even more during globalization. Look how we now can get clementines in the wintertime. I mean, just a strange thing like that. Look at, look at the state of Alabama. And I think that's a great example. Alabama now has, at least for another couple of weeks, a Democratic senator, a guy named Doug Jones. The reason he could get elected was because Alabama is no longer a plantation state of cotton. Alabama is a globalized state that manufactures auto parts for, for all over the world. That changed the state of Alabama. I mean, look at um, GM now has 13 plants operating in China. Um, Honda has 12 factories manufacturing in the United States. Those are all the pluses of globalization. The negatives of globalization, and yes, there are some negatives. One, of course, that not currently as much, but previously many people have lost their work as jobs switched overseas. You can't argue against that, okay? That's so true. The other negative about globalization is that there's no global management authority for globalization. You know, in 1944, FDR um, convened Bretton Woods to set up a global financial system. And that's more or less held somewhat by band-aids together um, since then. But there's no governing system for globalization. But isn't that one of the positives of globalization is that um, it's a good, good for our own security because the, of the other countries, especially south of the border, have a bigger middle class. That means there's less money we have to invest in in uh, securing ourselves from those countries or from their governments constantly being overthrown or from us actually have to invest in those companies to try countries to stabilize them. Is that true? Well, Mark, for sure. I mean, and, and think about it. If you're trading with somebody, theoretically, you're not shooting at them. Right. So that's definitely true. Um, no dominant country citizens going back to Greece really like globalization because the undeveloped country can always undercut the developed country in terms of wage costs. I mean, that's one of the reasons we had the revolution here and broke off from Great Britain. Even China is being undercut by Vietnam, Thailand, and others. Am I correct about that assumption? Look, certain industries always seek to go to the lower wages. But, but you know, our world has changed. So, um, and, and now because of automation, labor is a, a much smaller component of manufacturing cost. Um, let's look at the U.S. auto industry. The U.S. auto industry, forgetting about any recent COVID statistics, was produce, is producing more cars domestically than it ever has in its history. But with 50% of the amount of workers that they had in 1952, all because of automation. So as, as we become much more automated, the labor component of manufacturing becomes a smaller and smaller part. How much has automation affected the American worker over lower wages by third world countries? I mean, those um, great union jobs that people had in steel mills and automotive uh, companies and other manufacturers, is it true that they, they've left here or they still exist because I also hear from manufacturers saying they can't get enough um, skilled people to do the jobs. Well, they some, a lot, look, I'll honestly, a lot of left, but the great migration of those jobs 
were 20, 30 years ago. Um, where, you, where are you located? Uh, Philadelphia. Okay. So you know what's happened in Northwest Philadelphia 20, 30 years ago. It, it was wiped out, basically, by jobs um, going offshore. I'm in New York City. Um, Long Island City, and before the 1970s, was as strange as it might sound, in Queens, right across from Manhattan, was the third largest manufacturing area in the United States after Detroit and Pittsburgh, making, you know, not making heavy industrial things, but pots and pans and such. Now Long Island City is all condominiums. It's, it's no longer manufacturing. So yes, those jobs in overseas. But today the real, the real, I don't want to say enemy, the real um, um, thing that's taking away jobs is automation. Look at the steel workers, talking about Pennsylvania. You know, 20 years ago, it used to take 10 people to make a ton of steel. Today, it takes one. Nothing to do with jobs going overseas. Totally automation. Yeah, I grew up in a steel town. Lucan Steel was the big steel mill in the town that right. I grew up on in Coatesville outside of uh, Philadelphia. Sure. You know, with all the things that are all the investments being made in AI and automation, I have a real concern about unrest because I think the middle class is shrinking and uh, good paying jobs where people could afford a house, uh, a car, sending their kids to college. We've become more of a service industry uh, economy. And so many people have to uh, have two or three jobs just to survive. I mean, the pandemic has kind of shown that. I think you're partly correct, but we have to look at a couple of things. Before COVID, um, which of course changed the picture totally, you know, the Trump administration was going around saying, all these jobs are going overseas, we need high tariffs, high tariffs, high tariffs. Reality, why did we need high tariffs if we had full employment in the United States, which we did? I'm not talking about the quality of jobs, but we had full employment. I think that's somewhat ironical. I think also what we've seen in, in human history is that, and, I, and honestly, as an academic, I can tell you I don't know why. I'm, I'm admitting my ignorance here. We have seen when there are technological shifts, the new technology does um, take over um, the employment of the old technology. Why that happens, I don't know, okay? But we, we have seen that. Um, I also think, and this is a much longer um, statement, that we've had a huge failure in government here. Huge, huge, huge failure in government. And I'm, I'm going to go on a little bit here, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't want to be too pandem pandemic. But what we've seen is, you know, in the United States history, when there have been huge economic changes, in the late, in late 19th century, when we went through our Industrial Revolution, and it looked like we would have huge companies monopolizing everything. We had factories making food that were really just had, you know, rats and vermin in the food. All these issues were going on. We had um, Teddy Roosevelt and his people and the presidents that follow they really broke up the trust and they, they allowed capitalism to move forward less harmful than it was going on its own. In 1932, in the Great Depression, FDR also saved capitalism by providing a social safety net. 
for some reason, our political system failed here. And as globalization was changing our economy, the political system didn't find the means of protecting the citizens. And, and I think the government really, not the government failed, because the government's only an instrument of political leadership. Political system failed. I actually wonder if, if uh, the leadership at the top of corporations, because when I was out of college in 82, um, CEOs made 60 times what the average worker was making. Now you see stats of 3,000 times what the average worker is making. And, and I wonder if not enough of the money is being actually uh, given to the workers as a whole, because how much money does somebody actually need to be making? Yes, well, I, I agree with you there. But, I, you know, I think it's more, once again, that's a function of government policy. That's a function of government tax structure. Um, and it's how the government decides to allocate all this. The government should be the common real. I think one of the problems that happened here was honestly Reaganism. And it's coming back to haunt us now. You know, Reaganism, Ronald Reagan with his famous quote, which I'll probably not quote exactly, was, you know, the worst words you could hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the reality is we need governments. And no, no bigger proof of it is than today with the pandemic. Governments have a function. Yeah, oh, for sure. So how is COVID changing the landscape uh, for international trade and, and globalization now? I mean, what, what, do you, what is happening now? What do you think is going to happen? Okay, well, I, I, I just was in a conversation, an academic conference on this uh, last week, and I was asked that very question. And I was somewhat sarcastic, and I referred to supposedly Zhou Enlai, um, the prime minister of China under Mao, when it, this is in the 70s, when asked what he thought, how did the French Revolution affect the world? He said, it's too early to tell. <laughs> so it's kind of too early to tell um, how um, COVID's affecting it, but we see some things. Look, we see, you know, in the U.S., uh, in terms of globalization and international trade, let's say fear went crazy. Let's say fear went crazy. If you think about it, would you outsource your fire department in your neighborhood? No. So why would we outsource the medical supplies? You, you know, it's just, once again, where was government? Where was government saying, this is nuts? Right. Uh, but somebody can make a higher margin. I mean, most of the people who are on this call are like myself. We're all entrepreneurs uh, running our own businesses. And I think what happens there is somebody says, geez, I can make a few cents extra. When you're multiplying that by millions, it becomes real money. Right, of course. Yeah, of course. And I agree. But that's, let's say, fear going crazy. To some, to some extent, government should be there and saying, no, you can't do this. Like, no, you can't just sell um, military equipment around the world. You know, at one point, you know. This is a, a vital thing for the United States to have a medical supply. It should be domestic industry. So I think that's changed. I think what's also changed is that many, many, many people from the huge manufacturers to small manufacturers, look, it was always easy to deal with China. 
because going back to a, an academic concept of what Paul Krugman calls the cluster, or the manufacturing was there, it was easy to deal, deal with. But people, you know, now realize, you know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. So that's changed. So we see Google and Apple now manufacturing in Vietnam because you don't put all your eggs in one basket. I think what's also as, as um, you know, we, we've changed the idea of just in time, the, the, academic, the economic and business concept of just in time to reduce inventories, that the main factory shouldn't hold inventory well, that really doesn't work if the main, if the sub factories have to close because of COVID. Right. So those concepts are also beginning to change. Did, was, did you guys learn anything when you were studying this from past pandemics, like the Spanish flu a hundred years ago? Uh, because there was still, there was not as much, obviously not as much globalization then. They didn't have the internet then and those type of things. But was there anything learned from that that can be applied now? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we look at we have, we look at two huge pandemics. First, the long, long, long ago, the Black Plague in Europe. Black Plague in Europe, by reducing 30-40% of the European population at that time, probably caused most historians, economic historians believe that was the deathbed of feudalism because labor became scarce. Spanish flu is a much different story because a lot of it's buried in, in First World War. And a lot of it, it, it was not so much written on it, interesting, and really was not studied to actually write around now because of the First World War. What we do know is that um, immediately after the war, there was an extremely deep recession. Some people call calling it the hidden depression. Um, it was buried. It was really. I mean, the news and historical stories there are not really. It doesn't. There's not much reported on the effects of the Spanish flu, except for this recession. Let me go back to some of the things about globalization. Most people, when they think of globalization, um, but you write about the benefits of immigration for the U.S. Uh, and yet there's this in this big pushback on immigration. You know, everybody says legalizing immigration, but really I think that the country, especially under the current administration, has really tried to close the doors to immigration. How does that affect globalization and what does that mean for us here in the U.S.? Look, it's all part, first, it's all part of the Trump's, Trumpian idea of isolationism cut us off, don't let other, other people here. It's all part of the populist rhetoric also. It's the other trying to hurt, hurt the sacred American society. But it, I think, look, new ideas come from immigrants. We look at just Silicon Valley. We look at the Google boys. We can go on and on. We can look at um, Steve Jobs' father was a Syrian immigrant. We could look at the um, head of... Um, the head of Google right now is a, is a fellow from India originally. I mean, it's on and on. It's what makes America a dynamic place is this interchange of ideas and cultures. It's not been our competitive differentiator compared to the rest of the world. Because when I travel to other countries, they're mostly uh, homogenous. And yet when you come back to the United States, we are really the, the runt. I mean, like we're really the mixed uh, dog. Yeah, but I think this mud brown 
I think this multicultural mud in the great exchange of cultural, uh, uh, different cultures and ideas and ways of thinking makes us the leader in a world that is more and more based on human knowledge. You, you talk about sovereign states, and I'm wondering, what's the advantages of not being a sovereign state? Uh, the, the sovereignty means that a government controls its borders and the legal jurisdictions within, within the land area. Um, one of the problems of globalization is that sovereignty is getting softer, but there's no uber body of law that replaces it. So look, and, and we have a rule of laws in the United States, but what are the laws in globalization, okay? And this, this is the problem. So as, it's, it's sovereign, one could argue that sovereignty is a very old-fashioned concept to a certain extent, but where's the concept to replace it? And there's none. And so to a certain extent, you need sovereign laws to have efficient globalization. I mean, isn't that what the European Common Union did was essentially try to get rid of that concept of the sovereign state? And the, the United States were really 50 countries all under one. I mean, can you imagine if we broke off like England did from the European Union, how expensive business would be to do if you had to? Oh, a, a very good point. The European Union was, was really, which started with the common market back in, in the late 40s, and it actually started as the European Iron and Coal um, Group. The, the, the European Union is, is a group of states that have, some, have given away some sovereignty, not all sovereignty. They, it's, it's, it goes back and forth whether it's a strong organization or not, but it's really worked and it's really done some great stuff. Um, but they still keep some of their sovereignty. They still keep the, you know, who's the leader of each country. They still, still keep their own foreign policy. They still have their own armies. But in terms of international trade, in terms of borders, in terms of a lot of regulations, it's one unit. I, I don't understand the value to England to break off from the European Union. I, I just, you know, I know they're paying X amount of dollars every month, uh, but I don't get what was, what's the upside for them? There was no upside but human nationalism. So no real good, good business reason for doing it. Well, there's no business reason whatsoever. There's no economic reason. It's economic suicide. But just like, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, globalization is part of human economic and cultural evolution. The idea of being a tribe is as old as globalization. In England, don't forget, this is the country that in 1948 needed to be convinced to take Marshall um, Fund money, because Marshall Plan money, because they thought it would tie them too much to the continent even though they were bankrupt, right. okay? This is the country that held on to the pound sterling instead of going to the euro. You know, tribalism is a very important component. And with, with England, another thing was happening. Being in industrial Midlands was going through the same industrial horrors that our Rust Belt was going through. And these people were very angry about um, globalization, and then they saw it 
as represented by the European Union. In the book, you make a case for the fact that automation is a bigger threat automating things than lower cost workers. I mean, everybody's always been talking about special unions saying, yeah, there are you know, people in Vietnam and Thailand and everybody is underpricing uh, our workers. And that's why we're losing these jobs, but it's really automation uh, that's made a di big difference. So can you talk a little bit about the automation is more of a bigger threat than the other countries? Yeah, well, you know, once again, when we're, we're not, job loss to globalization, to outsourcing, has really been very small in the last 10, 15 years. The job loss is to automation. I mean, just take a simple thing. Look at our supermarkets. You know, up until a couple of years ago, the checkout counters were, were basically, a lot of people working there were high school kids working jobs at the checkout counters. Now the checkout counters, everything's scanned. It's all automated. Yeah. You know? And now Amazon's creating stores where you don't even have anybody in there, just the people stocking the shelves and you walk in and everything you pick up, they put on your credit card. Correct. And those, store, those stockers are eventually going to be robots. <laughs> of course. Right. And so um, that has nothing to do with jobs going to China. That is, that, you know, so this is what I mean. Automation is, to a certain extent, is our very good friend, but could be also our, our enemy. But once again, this is, you know, somewhat this is my mantra. Where is the government on this? Where is the government training people to do different things? You know, where's the government stepping in to give some regulation to this? I'm, I am, I'm, 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 I'm totally a free trader capitalist type of guy, okay? But I believe there's a role of a common wheel in the old um, British legal term to balance forces. And, and that's why I think this is a role for government here. How important is globalization for stability? I talked about this earlier with third world countries, which opens economic opportunity and reduces the need for U.S. to provide financial support. I mean, even the Middle East now, a lot of these countries are coming around to working with Israel. And I read in the Wall Street Journal, they said it's just being pragmatic because Israel has such a thriving economy that it's just making more sense for us to partner with them on a lot of the uh, technology things that they can bring to us. You know, I think it, it, this is, it, and, um, unfortunately, I think that example has gotten more hype than reality, to use the Mideast example, to use even um, the new deal that was just announced with Sudan today, or the United Arab Emirates. Or, I mean, the, the, for instance, the Emirates states, these are mainly sophisticated urban oil-based economies. But there's not much to trade there, okay? But, um, and they made the pact with Israel much more out of politics than because of trade. They made the pact because the enemy of my enemy of- Sure. And, and it's, it's both anti-Iranian thing. And, you know, with, Su with the Sudan, I mean, what do they have to trade? They're so poor. There's really nothing there. No, no offense to the Sudanese. But um, so I don't know whether this is all more about 
political game, gamesmanship in the Mideast than economics. But, but this, uh, look at Venezuela. Uh, they became a nationalistic country, and look what's happened to them. They stopped being a global uh, country. Venezuela was a study in how horrible government can be. Right. <laughs> you know, and how stupid government can be, how self-serving, and the, the failures of autocracy. I mean, Venezuela is, is just a horrible economic um, place at the moment, all based on failures of government. There, uh, I, in my observation, that China and possibly Russia only follow the rule of law when it suits um, the elites of those countries, does not seem to really hinder them economically. Yeah, well, I think we have to separate China and Russia. Um, I think they have uh, two different views here. Look, China follows the law when it helps them economically. Um, take the WTO laws. I mean, China has done tremendously well within the WTO. One of the WTO rules, as you know, is that you cannot support an industry in terms of um, international trade. The government can't support the industry. In fact, we just had the Boeing Airbus suits at the World Trade Organization over there. China doesn't need to have a law to support the industry. They have you know, word of mouth. The party wants you to do something. You know, so you don't need the law. So you can't even really take them to the WTO to argue about that. So yes, China bends the rules all the time. It should, one of the problems with the, with the Trump policy was that they ignored Chinese culture on this because the, the Obama had the TPP which all the countries would get together for a rule of law and international trade and pressure China and pressure them quietly. You know, do you know about um, FACE, the, the Confucius concept of FACE, where you don't scream yes. at some, someone publicly? The Trump administration screams at, some, at the Chinese publicly. That's not how you get things done in a Confucius culture. And, and this, is, this is a failure of our policy here. Um, but if I can go on about this, Russia is a total story, different story because China is a globalized state. China, it's freely traded or sometimes stolen, but in terms of um, data, but freely traded back and forth. Russia decided for many re historical reasons truly never to be a globalized state. They're like in a, in a 19th century place. So what, what, I, I don't understand because Putin is always talking about wanting to be a prominent player, but does he not want to be a prominent player economically? Putin wants to be a prominent player in, the, in a 19th century world. So a, a modern czar. A modern czar, correct. I mean, he has, he has one economic asset called oil and gas, you know, carbon, which is diminishing in value daily. Every day, the long-term value of, of carbon gets less. He's, he, it's called, there's an economic term for it, it's called the resource curse. He's made no investments whatsoever in trying to change the economics of Russia, of building a technology area, building God knows what. He has made no efforts, they, they depend on this, golden cow, 
um, called carbon, but carbon's falling in value. That Putin's amazing because Putin, you know, in terms of boxing, is playing way above boxing, way above his weight class, and 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 do and we're letting him do a great job at it. But he he's the non-globalized state. And, uh, and, and and you have other countries like Saudi Arabia and other countries in the Middle East who are in the same predicament. Saudi Arabia is in the same... They're not making same, investments in other areas. You know, you look at it, Saudi Arabia is interesting in what's happening there. If you look at it historically, during the Mid-Ages and the Renaissance, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states were very rich because they had spices and perfumes. Remember um, Lady Macbeth and Shakespeare, all the perfumes in Arabia, I can't get this blood off my hands. And the European, Europeans desperately needed these things, one, to preserve food, the spices, and two, for, for the odorant, because they didn't take baths. The, the moment, so the, the, those states were very rich in the 12th and 13th century. The moment Portugal discovered a way around them they instantly declined and didn't get back to having money again till oil was discovered. But they, in the, in the 13th and 12th and 13th century, they didn't look for other industries besides spices and perfumes. And the same thing is happening now. You know, a, the, the, the world is changing, but they're trying to sell, you know, keep with the old product. So uh, in your book, you mentioned four things a country or even a region needs to compete. What are they? Because I think, you know, Philadelphia feels like it's got to compete with New York. And in Pennsylvania, each county feels like it's got to compete with the other counties. And of course, the United States thinks about every day, how do we compete with China? Uh, Japan has been, never came out of the malaise. It's, it's been in for like 30 years. So what are the four things that we need to do to, to compete? Well, I think one to compete, you, you need to have an open culture. You need to have to be able to exchange ideas. That's extremely important. But you also need, once you've exchanged those ideas, you need to be able to protect. If you come up with a great idea, you need to protect it. So if you're an Apple engineer and you speak to a Google engineer Saturday at your kid's softball game, exchanging what's good, what's not good. And then later on, you come up, the synthesis of those ideas, you need to be able to protect it with a legal copyright law. And I think that's very important. I think you also need to have um, a, a venture capital system, an investment system that is not run by the government or doesn't have any government influence. And the investment needs to be made on the fact that it's going to pay off or not pay off. And I think that's very important. I think an education system by the city or the state is extremely important. Look, here in New York City, we had a, a billion mayor, Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg, we had the city owned this huge chunk of land in the middle of the East River called Roosevelt Island. Michael Bloomberg decided to build a postgraduate university there for technology brilliant idea. And now New York, even with COVID, has more tech jobs than on um, the San Francisco Bay Area in, in Silicon wow. Valley. Once again, 
civic leadership that thinks about the future. Interesting. So, so important. And, and of course, the, I think the other thing you need is, is a central government that keeps, its, keeps a commonwealth, in, once again, a balance, commonweal rather, a balance, but basically gets its hands out of, of the entrepreneurial process. Uh, not too much regulation, is that what we're saying? Reg, you know, it, it's a balance. Yeah, generally not too much regulation, but of course regulation when the concept hurts people. Look, you know, one, one of the things that has made America the tech giant of the world is this lack of overregulation. So for instance, Uber comes up with an idea of, of that we have a more efficient way of doing taxis, right? Yes. And so it, we can experiment that in, with this market of 360 million people, and it can grow. Overseas in Europe, you couldn't do that because if Uber came up with the idea in France, you'd have the government wanting to protect the taxi workers. Well, it's funny you should mention because you know when Uber and Lyft came in, um, that was great for everybody because you're paying less than the taxis, but the taxi drivers got screwed or, or the taxi owners because they had to pay big money for those medallions that they had. And taxi drivers, even in Philadelphia, taxi drivers told me that they could make a, one who owned a cab over 100000 a year. Now, you see in California, just uh, it was just decided, right, that uh, they have to pay them as if they're full-time employees, which knocks out their competitive advantage against the taxi. Yeah, no, I, look, it, it changed. One, one of the good things, change hurts people. One of the good things sometimes, one of the good things about America, it, it allows that change. One of the bad things about it, it hurts people. Look, I mean, look at one of the great business school cases was written by a guy named Levitt a long time ago at, in the Harvard, in, at the Harvard B School about the buggy whip factory. Um, the factories that made the whips to um, hit the horses so they can go faster in the buggies. Henry Ford came about. What happened to all those workers in the buggy whip factory? They went to work for Henry Ford. Right, right, exactly. But it's the same thing. That's the change. Change does happen. You, you write in the book that the absence of a non-compete changed the balance of power between East Coast and West Coast. Would you say the internet and the ability to work anywhere is changing it again? And what does your research tell you? Um, well, what I, what I meant in that was that, and it's, it's a good question. What I meant in that was that in, in the internet, not the internet, the, uh, the American computer industry started around one, 128 in, in Boston between MIT and Harvard. And actually, um, there's a great book on it about, um, by, about Dell building a computer and starting there. Um, but one of the problems is the New England culture was you couldn't, you wouldn't talk on the baseball field your son or daughter's baseball field on the weekend. You wouldn't share ideas because the New York, the New England culture is not to talk so much. And the other thing is that Massachusetts had very strong non-compete laws. So you go out west to Silicon Valley, same thing between two universities, between Stanford and Berkeley. 
But now it's the California culture where everybody talks and shares knowledge. And it, California doesn't have as strict a non-compete contracts. So Google, someone could leave Apple, go to Google and cross-fertilize it with some ideas from Apple. And, and, and that was really important. Do you see the power uh, shifting? Like, you know, here in, uh, in the East, people were constantly telling the government, you need to lower taxes, lower taxes. We had California super high taxes. And those areas that in Silicon Valley has very high taxes, and yet it hasn't hurt, I don't think it really has hurt their competitive uh, ability. And in fact, many entrepreneurs are still attracted to go out to Silicon Valley regardless of the tax uh, situation or how expensive housing is. Mark, I totally agree with you. I think taxes a good part of our relevance to a certain extent in terms of business development. I mean, we've seen, you know, if we look at the post-war World War II history of the United States in terms of job growth and booms, I mean, the 50s, taxes were 80, 70, 80% top rates. Country was booming. Clinton increased taxes from Reagan tax cuts. Economy boomed. I mean, obviously, at a certain point, taxes cuts off um, entrepreneurial growth, but it has to be fairly high because if the entrepreneur thinks he's going to have a great idea, taxes are not going to hinder him. Yeah, I don't think so either. I haven't seen anybody think about that. Right, exactly. You know, it sounds good, but it's a, but in reality, I don't think the economic figures support it. Well, what about the this concept of always uh, raising the uh, minimum wage, because the earth is still round, you know, everything is essentially the same, except everybody decides, you know, as soon as you raise um, the lowest amount, the people at the top say, I can't lose my margins here. So within six months to a year or some period of time, they raise it again. And it's just, you know, the dog chasing its tail. Well, I go back to Henry Ford, who, who I dislike tremendously, but also respect for his entrepreneurialism. Henry Ford said, I'm going to pay everybody $5 a day, which was a radical amount of money at the time. And they asked, how could you do that? He said, well, then they'll be able to afford to buy my cars. Right. Right. Yeah, sure. Of course. And, and I think that's the simple answer to that. Also, as, as Joe Biden said last night, and it's the same with the tax argument, the data has shown that um, an increased minimum wage wage does not, does not cause people to lay off people. Yeah. Oh, I don't think so either. I, I, I think that everybody just ends up paying more. I mean, when, when my parents bought our first house, our second house, and they paid $36,000, I thought, oh my God, $36,000. That's a closing cost of a mid-priced house today. Right. Uh, and it's the same exact house. Uh, I, I wasn't surprised NAFA was refreshed since it was signed almost three decades ago. Is the new version good for American business and employees? Yes, the new version's fine. The new version's not so much different from the old version. It was a, a typical Trumpian deal. And then the fact that what he did was he changed some commas and he called it a victory. Um, I'm being a little facetious here. What he actually did was change some common commas and updated the knowledge and technology areas to represent exactly what, um, exactly some of the wordings identical to what um, Obama negotiated under the PPP. 
Interesting. And what industries do you think in this country will be winners and which ones uh, does your research tell you are in trouble on a global basis? Uh, well, uh, in, in, if we're looking at the countries, our country per se, the, the whole 50 states, obviously, uh, what's going to be a winner is our agriculture, which always is a winner. So that th th that will stay a winner. I look. I think once again we have a huge advantage in this world in technology, because if you put together our immigrant culture with the different ideas, our academic freedom, and um, you mix all this together in a great cocktail, we in our in our VC structure and our banking system. We have the un, we have we we have a huge advantage of creativity here that I don't think the rest of the world has. You know, I, I lecture to some Chinese students. Okay, I lecture um, for a program in haven't lectured for a program in China. Now lecture in the, through Zoom to some of my my students would be here in New York, but they they weren't allowed to come in because of COVID and whatever. And so then Shanghai and Beijing. You know, how do you exchange ideas? How, how do you talk on that, once again, that Saturday softball field, if you're not allowed to exchange ideas? How, how do you create things? I've been in a situation where for a program I worked under, teaching um, students in, in Shanghai, where they couldn't update the information because the program had only negotiated so much um, open internet time with the Chinese wow. government. That's a disadvantage. Tremendous disadvantage. You need that free exchange of ideas. What do you think about cyber um, cryptocurrency uh, on a globalization? Because you know a lot of people like Tim Draper have been very much pushing cryptocurrency, and I kind of think that they think of that as a, a, another step in the globalization process. Mark, I'm, I have to honestly tell you, I'm not so familiar with it. I know my fellow professor at NYU, Rubini, Professor Rubini, thinks it's a horror. I know it, it's opened up to a lot, it opens the whole system up to a, large, a lot of corruption. And I think you do need governments to manage um, um, money. But I can't tell you much about it, honestly. Yeah, I, I have real questions about cryptocurrency because it's still based on dollars or, or some denomination. So I'm, Aside from hiding your money, uh, I don't quite get it myself. What kind of deal do you think needs to be worked out with the Chinese for America to succeed in the long term? You know, once again, I don't see China as, as the threat and the super competitor as other people do. Obviously, China's playing fast and loose with, with um, the WTO rules and with stealing data. I, and as I said earlier, I think we need to pressure them through with our allies, with Europe and with Japan to stop that. They need to feel some pain for doing that. Um, but I think because of our entrepreneurial spirit, because of our ability to share ideas, um, I think China isn't the threat. I think we're, you know, I think we're we're the unstoppable nation. We've always been the lucky nation. You know, if you look at it, geography, we're the place with, with oil, with good farmland, with good climate, with two oceans protecting us. We lucked out ge geographically. 
we did very well in the Industrial Revolution. Now I think the American culture is perfect for the new times. And it's how we let that blossom is the issue. How we allow, uh, let that blossom so all can benefit from it, so we don't have political disruption. I think we, we, we're going to be the leaders. Uh, and you say we're going to be leaders, but I wonder, will China, because of its sheer size, growing entrepreneurial class, and China was very entrepreneurial before, the, uh, before uh, Mao took over, uh, and half the national debt of the U.S., uh, as I looked it up last night, surpassed the U.S. as the most economically powerful country? Well, they're going to look, by, by number of people, they have to eventually surpass us, okay? Just by number of people. On the other hand, if you look at China now, you know, what do we say? We, everyone says um, Greece is the poor person of Europe, right? Yes. But the Ch Chinese average um, um, per capita GDP is below Greece. You know, we have to look at this in, in, in some reality here. We have to look at apples to apples and not this just giant number and say, this is, this is a problem. I, I also think China under Xi has, has many, many problems that are, are being covered up. They must have to have the government they do when you're managing a billion five people, right? And, and so many different, even though the Mandarin, I guess, is the primary language followed by Kenny's, there's still what, like seven time zones, eight time zones, and lots of different cultures running around. No, 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 and it's huge, and China's, oh, you know, China's always had it, you know, China's known democracy for what, five, 10 years when Sun Yat-sen yeah. came in power? I mean, in, in this 5,000 year history, they've always culturally felt they needed an autocratic country to, because the populations were so massive. And then, but we also have to remember that up until